Hello everyone, welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly podcast where we talk about what's going on in the world of EBM. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor here at the BMJ, and as always, I'm joined by Carl and Helen. Guys, can I get you to introduce yourself? I'm Helen McDonald, UK research editor at the BMJ, um, and I previously worked as a GP. Hi, I'm Carl Hennigan. I am a GP and Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine and Professor of EBM at the University of Oxford. Back to being a professor, not just an academic. Yeah, it changes every month, doesn't it, unfortunately? The increase in your importance. (laughs) Right. um, So, uh, as always, we are looking around. We try and look for things that are going to help you in your practice, what you should maybe start doing, what the evidence is saying, new things that are, are good and maybe what you should stop doing when new evidence has come out about something that we are already doing in practice every day. This week, Helen, you've been looking at arthritis. That's something you must get quite commonly in primary care. Yeah, there was a nice uh, uh, trial. Actually, Carl found it. Uh, looking at whether... Uh, what can I say? Just pulling back the curtain <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> da, 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 da. You need uh, to have this like Carl worked harder than now. me this month. Okay, I put my hands up. Um, it was a study asking whether um, a six-week course of steroids, oral steroids, could help pain and function in people with a flare-up of hand osteoarthritis, um, which is a great question. Um, it crops up in primary care, but actually this was a secondary care um, study done in outpatients there, um, looking at people who who had a flare-up of their disease, who had uh, four uh, nodes. Um, What's the node? Mm. Basically, knobbly bits on your fingers where basically they're swollen and painful at the joint areas. Yes. So you had to have four knobbly bits and at least one of them had to be swollen or red. And at least one of them had to have ultrasound evidence of inflammation going on in it. So I think it's fair to say that about a third of the people that they assessed who were happy to go into the study, they had to exclude because they didn't meet those criteria, mostly because they didn't have enough ultrasound evidence of inflammation, which I guess... quite a lot of evidence they needed. That sounds like quite extreme arthritis. Didn't sound like the world's most pragmatic study to me. Do you think that'd be fair to say, Carl? No, it's well, we'll but, get there. But the first thing is to say this is a significant problem, isn't it? About it is. It's a really, it's a really big problem. And you, you know, about ten percent of the adult general population has handoarthritis, which is severely limiting in their capacity and function and painful. More common as well in women over the age of seventy. About twenty-five percent of women over seventy have handarthritis that can limit function. Yeah, so this study was looking at, um, over the course of six weeks, if you could improve pain or stiffness during a flare. And there was something interesting about the way they measured this. And I started reading it and thinking, how were patients involved in picking these outcome measures? Um, and what do all these scales of pain really mean? And Carl made an exciting discovery. Well, look, look, it's exciting. I am excited, but that's because I'm an EBM nerd. The first thing is to say... In an era of big data, it's really interesting. This is a randomized controlled trial in 92 patients, and it's got into one of the top journals in the world. And therefore, 
when you have the right question, the right design, important outcomes, and you do it really well, you can get your research. And, and what it tells you, the smaller the sample, means there must be an important effect. And so this is the thing that often corrupts that, is when you read the outcomes, you go, the primary endpoint was finger joint pain after six weeks on a 100 millimeter vast score. And you're like, well, oh, we've been here before. But what they say is, one of the endpoints is the OMERACT OASI scale, and that's the Outcome Measures in Rheumatology Osteoarthritis Research Society International Score, if you like, Responder Criteria. Now, why that's interesting is OMERAC are a group of people who meet every two years to determine outcome measures in rheumatology. And what they realised is very early on, going back in 1992, they formed this society, realising that when you looked at trials, you often find very different ways of measuring outcomes particularly pain, subjective ways. And so when you try and do systematic reviews, it's a real problem. So they created the OMRAC Society, and they meet every two years and create these criteria. From about 2002 onwards, they started to involve patients in these criteria. And that's where in rheumatology we discovered important issues like fatigue were important outcomes to patients. With and rheumatoid I, arthritis, that was. Yeah, in rheumatoid arthritis. And um, I suspect... Their work has been seminal in sort of public and patient involvement in research mm. in guiding some of the what we should do. And we should definitely have more uh, criteria developed where they're standardized in this way. Now, what does the OMRAC to ASI mean? It means that you have to have a, a pain that's greater than 50% relief or physical function that's greater than 50%. So you report that and you have a change in at least 20 millimetres in the VAS score, which is a significant difference if you look at it. You know, if you're at, right at the top end, you're coming down from 100 to about 80. So that was quite interesting. That was a very interesting little tutorial from Carl, wasn't it? Mm. <laughs> um, Thank you very much. I enjoyed that. Um, so essentially, they find that it is worth it. They, they, they find that there is a change on this score, but how do we know that the difference was enough does, does it help us with that yeah so this is where it gets really interesting you know you've got a small trial and so after six weeks they start to report the OMRAC to RC scale and what they show in the prednisolone group is 72 percent got better versus 33 percent in the placebo group so the absolute effect is quite big 39 percent so in effect you, if you treat 100 people, 39 more people will get better on prednisolone on the ORC scale. The flip side, though, is where this then gets interesting, where I get into a bit of umming um and ahhing. Remember that the majority of people are old. Therefore, but they're not that old in this study. No, they're not the that old. Most of the ones you see in practice are quite old, but I think the median yeah. age in here is like early 60s. Yeah, and one of the things, though, is what they do is at six weeks, they taper you off down to, by eight weeks, no study medication. And at 14 weeks, um, you're basically back in line with the placebo group. Mm. So it's the, to what extent is this a, 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 a relapsing remitting condition that you get the pain and actually this gets you six weeks of pain only functioning in that period, but by 14 weeks you're back where you started. And that gives us the issues because steroids and prednisolone have issues with osteoporosis, and although they detected no adverse effects, there's a sort of really interesting balance of benefits to harm issue here. Yeah, because there's the other stuff, isn't there? And I, I didn't notice this in the, in the reporting, the kind of 
looking at things like sleep disturbance or mood problems that you might have on steroids or bleeding. These are the things which might bother you slightly in an older... Well, just to say the number of non-serious adverse events was similar between the groups. Mm. But I think what I would have wanted, for this to be a definite let's do this, is a much longer study Mm. that looked at potential for relapses if you like in the future and said at one year here's what we look because the potential here is you could tie yourself into recurring cycles of prednisolone Mm. and that's where the long-term complications of the the osteoporosis starts to come in and that's the bit that was missing but I think this is really interesting uh, evidence and I'd like to see this longer-term study done in a larger sample. And I, I consider, you know, this would be really interesting in a primary care population for those with severe hand arthritis mm. to understand. Now, why that's important, because the alternatives are just as bad mm. because they're non-steroidals, which or come injections. with, come with, yeah, come with uh, significant complications. Mm. And we would not give six weeks of non-steroidal to somebody who was elderly and at risk of gastrointestinal bleeding. And it'd be interesting to see how this played out in primary care because obviously you wouldn't have the ability to do an ultrasound scan in real life Mm -hmm. to enter someone into a trial. So you'd have those third of people that they kicked out of this study, arguably, who would remain in. Maybe they didn't have such a huge amount of inflammation. They might not benefit as much from the steroids. And Um, I think think that's interesting. But what's also interesting about this is like... Steroids like prednisolone have been around for years. Mm. They are generic, they're cheap. But actually, coming at this point in time, the reason I thought this was really interesting was that actually this is a novel finding in Still, 2019. Time, yeah. yeah, And I would have thought, oh, we'd have already been and revisited this. So there's a need to do these really pragmatic, simple trials for some important condition, which shows you we're still on the journey of trying to fix all of the evidence and all of the questions, and there's still a long way to go. So what's your verdict, Carl? Are you, would you, if you saw someone with a flare in their hand, would you say, how about trying this? Well, look, I think there comes a point when um, the severity of what you see in individuals is if they've got pain and physical function issues that suggest this is seriously debilitating their lives to the point where they can't do normal functioning activities, then the answer is you've got a therapeutic option which you can discuss with the patient. And I think there are issues where you, you're talking about severe arthritis here. We're not talking about just a, a little bit of a single joint. <coughs> is that going to go on camera? Is that going to go in the podcast? Leave it in. We've got nothing on flu this week, have we? <laughs> <laughs> Shrinking, dusty studio. No comment. The... Um, uh, I've totally lost where I am, but I'm coming back in time. What I think is, given if you had somebody with severe, and I've seen this a number of times, you find people which are severe end of spectrum, where sometimes you are prepared to offer treatments where you understand the risks, you can share them risk, and say, look, there's an option here for six weeks of treatment. I think there's potential for this to have uh, add benefit. But what I wouldn't want to do is get into cycles of six weeks of treatment and then at 14 weeks go again. What you're looking for is to give that six weeks and somebody to return to a bit better function, the inflammation to settle down and then to get a period of respite where they go, actually, my arthritis got better. That's not answered by this paper.
Yeah. So in guideline speak, I guess it's a kind of weak recommendation, a sort of shared decision making. Here's an option where you're going to have to weigh up the harm and benefit yeah. quite carefully, depending on, on yeah. who you are. Yeah, and look, I don't think we have to wait for the guidelines no. to be operating as clinicians. And this is what evidence-based practice is about. This is about there is evidence. Their adverse events are similar in the groups. Long-term consequences, yes. But if you've got severe pain right now, I consider this is a potential therapeutic option. Great. That's actually quite a good one, isn't it? It is. Well, the only other thing I was going to say about this uh, research paper is when I read it, one of the things that I liked about it is it had this box in it called Research in Context. Did you see that, Carl? And it had, had a little bit on evidence before this study, the added value of this study, and the implications of all the available evidence. And I thought it was just quite nicely presented in there. Yes, and just for me, there was no acronyms in there. I was just, just to, to say, say. checking it carefully for that. <laughs> and I actually do think it's, it, it is a nice section because I think this is a sort of bit, actually that should be freely available. You should make this available for the public section. It'd be really handy. And I do think is I'm a big fan of well-written language yes, that you can actually too. read as opposed to get confused by all them acronyms. <laughs> well, thanks for that. So that paper, results of a six-week treatment with 10 milligrams of prednisolone in patients with hand osteoarthritis, the HOPE trial, is now published in The Lancet and I'll link in the podcast text as always. So we're actually sticking with fingers for our next one. Sticky fingers. Sticky fingers. Um, lumpy fingers. Yeah, lumpy, lumpy fingers, fingers this time. So this is about finger clubbing and lung cancer. Now, I didn't know what finger clubbing was, and when you explained it to me, I automatically went and checked myself. So uh, maybe I think there's going to be a lot of people listening now who are, like, sticking their fingers yeah. together. So for anyone who isn't, uh, doesn't know what it is, what is... Well, let me tell you why this is quite interesting first. It's <laughs> appeared in all of the major newspapers. He's a politician now. He's not answering the oh, question. Yes. Let yeah. me tell you what <laughs> yeah. I'd like to say. Fact check, please. Everybody out there do a UK fact check site. Yeah. Look, it, all of the major national newspapers yesterday and today are running headlines which say simple finger tests that can reveal cancer. Lung cancer symptoms, three major clues in a person's hands that could signal the disease. So my first thing is, oh, well, that is interesting. It's about clubbing. It's as though they've all discovered it for the first time. But actually, we know that actually clubbing goes back to Hippocrates. And there's a great quote here from Samuel West in 1897. Clubbing is one of those phenomena with which we're all so familiar that we appear to know more about it than we really do. And I think Anybody who's done finals, anybody who's been a medical student, it's one of them uh, conditions that you will always reel out and say, could you just assess these hands? And a patient will appear with clubbing. And it was in the news because the idea is, I think, is to pass the information over to the public and say there are some cases out there where members of the public have said, hey, I've got these funny fingers, what's going on? And they'd be referred on and some of them have gone on to have lung cancer. So how good is it? How predictive is, is it of lung cancer? Because you said it's a bit of an emperor's new clothes. We all think we know what it means. Well, but, but one, of my, we don't. one of my all-time favourite series to find out about this information, if you want to go to, is the Rational Clinical yes, Examination. 
and there is a paper in there, does this patient have clubbing? This is a series in uh, JAMA. In JAMA. Yeah, I have to say it's, an, it's a great series. If you have diagnostic questions, type in rational clinical examination and does this patient have pneumonia, you get great information. The first thing they show in there is that our ability to agree is variable. A particular. The, so you mean our ability to actually decide whether someone has clubbing or not? Yes. It varies between yeah, people. They co- and, and a measure of intra-observer agreement is the K-value, and it ranges between 0.39, which is moderate, to about 0.9. And, and what, that's good or bad? That's good. So perfect is 1, right. 0.9 is actually very good. And if you look in there, one of the things about the, the, the highest scoring is it was five medical registrars and four consultant physicians. But there's a concern amongst that study that there was an element of selection bias where they were getting those with the most severe clubbing Mm. Mm. and actually it was easier to detect than the ones where you had medical students and uh, junior doctors who were slightly worse at detecting clubbing. Did they have GPs in there? No, they didn't. Yeah, I think it's interesting because what we found is with symptoms and signs type of research, it's completely switched off these days because we rely on imaging and... Mm. Uh, tests and so all of this research is done many years ago but it's fascinating to look at and I think there are some really interesting issues about how do you detect clubbing and there are three major ways and the three ways are what they call the nail fold angle which is you look at at you're looking at your index finger now but you're looking at that angle where it goes upwards towards the sky if you look at it horizontal now, mm-hmm. if that starts to go at 180 degrees, so it's flat, anything below that, mm-hmm. you potentially got clubbing. The second one is the phalangeal depth ratio. Gosh, it gets a bit more complicated. But that is if you take the bit where your nail at the nail bed, mm-hmm. yeah, and look at it compared to the, the bit, the highest point, which goes towards your knuckle, if you like, you've got a highest point about half a centimetre well, along. the highest point of your joint, next joint in, you mean? Yeah, but no, just before you get to the joint, you'll yeah. see the highest point. Okay. Now, what you're expecting is, that's called the IPD, or the interphalangeal distal yep. joint, is you're, you're, there, you're looking at that, that should be higher than where the nail bed. If it's the other way round, the nail bed is higher than the mm. highest point there, then you've got clubbing. But the thing is, both of them are quite complicated. So what you go back to then is what's called the Shamroff sign. Now, everybody who's listening, take your fingers. I do this with my index fingers, and Duncan's doing it perfectly. He's lifting it, putting both nail beds together, looking up to the light. That's making the diamond. Making, making the a diamond. diamond with putting both nails together. Can you see a little window where light's coming through? If so, then actually you're Shamroff negative. If there actually is no window, then that's a Shamroff sign. And do all those things agree with each other? No, they don't. No. And, and the Shamroff sign has no uh, <laughs> uh, diagnostic accuracy studies to um, go with it, as, as far as I'm like. aware. That's the easy one to do. I was looking at mine, though. I've got, like, the barest, <clears throat> barest bit of light. But the, but, but the things about clubbing is, this is a standard uh, medical student sort of year one question is the list of conditions that clubbing goes with oh it's huge isn't is it? huge actually and uh you've got the sort of 
many respiratory diseases. You can even find it in children with cystic fibrosis, adults with cystic fibrosis, many pulmonary diseases, TB, lung cancer's been in there, bronchiectasis. So what's the physiology? Why? Is something to do with your microcirculation or something? Uh, I'm not sure if that's worked out, but it's generally a swelling effect that's happening in the distal fingers. But the the other ones are important, inflammatory bowel disease. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, where there is evidence is the likelihood ratio uh, of clubbing for lung cancer is 3.9. So actually, a, I would that's the point, somebody who is clubbing, you'd be very unlikely not to further investigate them in some way. So, so, is a, so if you have isolated clubbing, no other symptoms, that's probably enough to do a chest x-ray? Well, I think it's enough to consider the investigations. It mm. depends in which pathway you're going and down, because, you know, you may be going down the gastrointestinal route, mm. Uh, you might be going down liver cirrhosis route. So I think it's a pathway for further investigations based on the presence of clubbing. And if you have that as an individual, I think it is worth turning up to your primary care and doctor and saying, I think I've got a positive Shemroff sign. So and See if they can remember what that means. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how does the maths of that work or the epidemiology of that work when it's a, a clinical sign as opposed to... to well, suddenly, you see, do. then you would be classed as symptomatic. And symptomatic increases your pretest probability of any disease. And it's a flow from pretest to having a test to then a, a higher chance of you having disease. And that's what we do in primary care is we're trying to rule out many diseases and manage the flow of patients to say you need further investigations to rule in disease. And, that, and I think it's a crucial point is this idea of as we're increasingly doing more tests on people who are asymptomatic, What's clear is if you have symptoms or signs, then they're the sort of persons who should flow through the system and get urgent investigations to either rule out any important disease or get them on a pathway because it could be an early sign of lung cancer that could be treatable. Does it say anything in the paper about the predictive value of clubbing if it's a new thing as opposed to if you've had it for ages? Because that might be an interesting thing to know, mightn't it? No, it doesn't. And there's a, a limited evidence, in the, uh, as I understand it, in terms of something as sophisticated as that question. Because mm. that would be good, wouldn't it? Is it a new symptom? Is it a new thing? Yeah. Great. OK, so um, that article, Does This Patient Have Clubbing? It's a nice, simple title. <laughs> <laughs> it's now available. And then, as we said, it's a rational clinical examination Um which is available in JAMA. And again, links from the podcast page. Okay, so uh, that's our start and our stop for this week. Now on to our discussion bit. And I think this is going to be a, a good one this week. I can see Carl gearing up for a rant, even if he doesn't think it's Well, going I've to got some out. news. Great. Well, let's go to that first. Okay. Keep Carl... Keep Carl at bay for another five minutes while we discuss our news. Absolutely. Um, so Cochrane made an interesting announcement just recently about uh, setting up a new uh, area around sustainable health and healthcare. And I spoke to um, its chief, I don't know officially what I should call her, but its chief, um, Minna Johansson um, out in Sweden, who's also um, a primary care doctor, about why the area has been set up. Great. Uh, let's that now. 
I'm Minna Johansson. Uh, I live in a small town in Sweden where I work half time clinically, clinically as a general practitioner. The other half I work as a researcher at Cochrane Sweden. I'm working on establishing a new Cochrane field called Cochrane Sustainable Healthcare. During the last decades, the costs of health healthcare has risen sharply all over the world. And the, the increased cost is not um, very good col- correlated with the improved health, uh, especially not in high-income countries. So it's increasingly recognized that a lot of that uh, spending is waste. And perhaps even more importantly, um, this overuse of uh, medical diagnosis and interventions harms patients. Patients can be harmed through uh, adverse effects of um, unnecessary um, medical interventions. They can be harmed by psychosocial impacts of labeling or through overwhelming uh, treatment burden, um, especially for people with chronic conditions. For me, I work as a general practitioner. And what I see is that um, much of the research, the way we do research now and the way we, we evaluate that research and the way we do guidelines, it's, it's, it's focused on one intervention at a time. And it's very difficult to, to that, that, that can be very well done, but still it doesn't make much sense in the clinical reality because first of all, maybe the, the, the outcomes that are important to the patients I see are not even considered in the primary research, in the evidence synthesis or in the guidelines. And secondly, um, the, the, the amount of all these different uh, recommendations or, or interventions uh, for one single person uh, is not considered uh, adequately, which means that many patients with chronic conditions are totally overwhelmed by treatments and interventions that we suggest them to, to use. And also, um, it's... What's lacking, uh, in my opinion, is that we don't consider resource allocation uh, adequately. Um, and, and the consequence is that we, do, we, don't, we don't do a horizontal prioritization of what we do in medicine. So that results in that, that we do a lot of stuff that might maybe be beneficial, but, but we, then we don't have time to do the, or time or resources to do the stuff that would be even more helpful to our patients. So that's, that's how I view what we, what we need to do in, in, in terms of resource use. Um, yeah. So that's one, one area that I think the field will work with, and that's very connected to, to the problems of unsustainable health systems. But the problem that many, it's been, I think, a little bit taboo to talk about resource use in terms of um, too much medicine, that it's more important to focus on the harms for the page for the individual patient. And I fully agree on that. But the consequence of, um, of not considering resource use and having this unsustainable way of dealing with resources in our within our health system is, of course, that we we use resources on interventions with limited benefit or or um, not so good balance between benefits and harms, and we don't do the interventions that would benefit the the patient even more, and also an increased spending on on healthcare will take resources from other societal sectors that may also have very important um, consequences for health. For example, school systems. Uh, 
Uh, one problem with, uh, with medical science today is that it's a little bit of hubris. Uh, we believe that much of what we do is very, very, very good. And I think that crucial in this work uh, is to have a really high dose, dose of humility. Because for, as for all of medical research, it's so important not to spin the result or overstate um, the evidence base or the trust in the evidence about overuse and overdiagnosis. And I think that these decisions about de-implementation and de-intensification of both interventions and diagnosis needs to be built on strong evidence. Um, our work will be very, very broad, uh, but some key priorities is, for example, to develop these fundamental reforms to both evidence production and, and synthesis methods so that research on medical diagnosis and interventions not only addresses potential benefits, but also harms. Our, our goal is uh, to create this international collaboration of people that are interested in this and to try to cross the traditional boundaries between the different stakeholders uh, in the evidence chain. So uh, anyone who's interested in this, uh, we would be very happy if you contacted us. First off, I'm feeling a bit relieved. Every time you say this, I've got some news. I think you're about to leave the BMJ and that's the end of the podcast series. So at least we're carrying on. But I guess that goes to the word sustainable because it's actually quite an ambiguous term. So as soon as people mention sustainable to me, I think there are three elements to sustainable. I think the first element is people might think about the environment and our impact in terms of what we do in healthcare. We add to the carbon load. To we should be thinking about how we use healthcare and how we also interact with the environment, and how, also how we're developing interventions that can help the environment and well-being. So that's my first. Second, I think sustainable, and I'm involved working with some people in sustainable urban development who are really interested in how we develop cities and the environment more than. 50% of people live in cities and by 2050 another 2.3 billion are going to live in cities in the globe. So that's my other point about sustainable. And then I think third is this issue in healthcare. It's not just about the outcomes and what we do. It's about a sustainable workforce because I'm pretty clear healthcare is always going to be around. We're not going to go out of business anytime soon. In fact, it's, what's happening is we're seeing a burgeoning increase in the workload, more interventions than ever, more incentive to do more. And actually, it was really interesting. We just had this report from the US that said their life expectancy is going down while they're spending more money than ever. And it's a consequence of doing too much, too much excessive opiates, I think, too much excessive obesity. And so sustainable across the board is quite an interesting term. Bringing all that together in one go is quite complex and difficult. So you wish men a good luck? I do wish men a good luck. And here's a bit I, I, I take up on. I think um, the concept of multimorbidity is really interesting. Mm. And it poses questions to me now. Is Does a lot of the evidence not apply to the patients we see? Because a lot of the historical evidence is in single disease patients. Mm. And it poses questions when we talk about drugs like hypertensives and statins and treating atrial fibrillation, which we're coming on to is, you know, people just don't have isolated disease unless you can find them early enough and young enough. By the time they're 65, they're hunting packs. So I think there is a need to refocus some of the evidence base and, and go back to the drawing board, looking at the concept of multimorbidity. 
And then when it comes to stopping trials, um, I've just been involved in one. Stopping treatments. Yes. Yeah, trials of stopping treatments. Yes, yeah, trials of stopping treatments. But you treatment. call them stopping trials. I call them <laughs> stopping trials. Um, that's shorter, isn't it? I'm, I'm nearly in an acronym there. Aren't I? Sorry, folks. But is what I've seen is where I think we've made errors and people have made errors is trying to say there's a single drug that you should stop. And I think what we don't know is in the context of multimorbidity and the interactions of drugs and people who are on many drugs, understanding which ones we should stop in a more pragmatic way as opposed to finding single diseases where we might stop a single hypertensive. And I think that's incredibly interesting. And as people get older, in their 80s and 90s, or what we call the very elderly, you know, which is going to be 100 soon, should we start to consider which ones we stop? Because at the moment, what we've done for the last 15 years is just keep putting them on more drugs. And then this therapeutic nihilism uh, occurs where people just leave them on them and nobody actually reviews the drugs and thinks, where's the evidence of benefit based on your... Uh, diseases, conditions, and your age. Mm. So you're talking there about using more kind of real-world people, real-world patients, real-world data, maybe, to, to, to do some of that. But that's not entirely straightforward, is it? And I suppose that's the next bit that we were going to talk about. Was... But I think it's quite interesting, I guess, there are Cochrane, quite a, quite a well-recognised international centre of evidence excellence and it's quite interesting or i think it's quite interesting that they have made they've, they've now carved this out as a particular area that needs attention should we see that as a as a good sign that some some major organizations are starting to take this problem quite seriously yeah and well the methodological problems that Minna talked about to to doing that well the thing that really interested me is is actually although you can move sideways we've still got a real issue with how do we get the evidence synthesized in a timely fashion and make it available and incorporate the real world data that goes with that and keep that continually updated and at the moment, what we're doing for systematic reviews and evidence synthesis is not timely and not actually producing the evidence that's required for practice. And so we often have to wait for the guidelines, which could be two or three years downstream. And I think that's where I'd be thinking about sustainable within the evidence production system. Great. So uh, real world evidence still. Let's talk about AF and the Apple Watch. So these are the the new devices from Apple that um, can measure things like pulse rate. Uh, and they've been sort of enrolling people into a, a really big study. Yeah, so I think look, this is interesting in lots of uh, you ways. You should tell us about it first, Carl. Well, I, let me tell you why it's interesting. I, I know you're putting me off already again. But I'm, not putting I'm you thinking off. sustainable, actually, at the moment. Um, <laughs> This is in the New England Journal of Medicine, 14th of November this month, large-scale assessment of a smartwatch to identify atrial fibrillation. So basically, if you've got a smartwatch, uh, nobody in the room has got one, so we're out immediately. You could have downloaded an app that could detect atrial fibrillation and in your pulse. And, and you it, just kind of self-enroll that. You yeah. download it. Yes, yeah, you had to be over 22 years of age. But first, to, let's say, the first thing is to say, good on Apple for actually doing the study. Uh, and the thing is, we need this type of research because whatever we think about this technology, it is out there. 
And the fact is, they've got over 400,000 participants, and it's out there in a large scale. And that's the first issue. Second is, trying to do some research around what they do is really important. But this is the bit where I start to slightly get in a bit of my rant zone, is you could repeat all of the problems of the past and go down the marketing trial approach that many pharmaceutical agents did. What or do you mean you, by marketing trial? Well, you start to design the trial and report the trial in a way that doesn't actually say you're doing high-quality research that's robust and you're trying to get to the truth. And it's written in a way, and I have to say, I just don't think many people read this stuff because it's very difficult when you get through the numbers. There is a particular aspect in the paper which uh, leads to what we I call the disappearing denominator where it feels like it's doing better than it should. So you, these people in this study, they've been, they've got their smartwatch, they've been to the app store, they've downloaded this irregular heartbeat detector. Uh, yeah. So how many do you have at the start? Okay, so there's four, 419,297 patients were included in the study population, of which 2,161 received an irregular pulse notification. So that's point. Yeah, roughly about there. But what happened to them is they're the people who you now think might have AF. Mm. They were then to have a a study visit with a clinician to check they could be included. And that's the telemedicine thing. Yeah, so that was a company with a telemedicine, but they had to check you were actually a real person and you met the criteria. You didn't already have AF, and so there were issues around that. But uh, already 1,216 patients failed to initiate first visit and were excluded. So then you go down the flop. What was then, then to happen was you would ship out an ECG patch, mm-hmm. which would then detect an ECG rhythm for mm-hmm. up to seven days. That was to be returned and then analysed by two clinicians to see if you had atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. So already you're going from, well, this is quite a straightforward intervention to actually quite mm-hmm. labour intensive. There's a lot of work goes on. But what they do is, you see, they go down this algorithm, 2,161. By the time you get to return ECG patch that was able to be analysed, there were 450 patients. Out of 400,000 at the beginning. Yeah. So even if you say 450 out of the 2,161, that's 21% of them. But they report it as 68.4% because they're reporting that of the people who had a patch shipped, which is a smaller percentage, and each way down the study flow. So by the time you get to completed the end of the study survey, only 254 people got to the end of the study. That's 12% of the 2,161. So basically you're just left with a situation where you can't really say much. And that is exactly. And I think um, this is the problem, you see. So with that loss to follow-up, you basically would be in a position that there's so much uncertainty about any results you now produce. You have to reflect that in all of your conclusions. Mm. What this is, and just to say I'm involved in a National Institute of Health Research Programme grant run out of Cambridge where we're trying to run an AF screening trial. And in that, they want to recruit 200,000 patients in primary care. Mm-hmm. But you start with a feasibility study of 24,000 and test all of the procedures to try and maximise and get iron out all of these problems. So to be honest, I see this as an Apple feasibility study, where actually if they were to design it again, they've got to really think through these issues. And so this is a not bad first go. But actually, Apple, if you get down the sort of science and evidence-based approach, you could join the party and really do something important, 
Or you can go down what I consider is the marketing trials approach and say, hey, we've done our study. Let's now all have the AF detector. Mm. And Carl is here for a consultancy, Apple, if you're <laughs> listening. Uh, I have some breaking news. Yeah. Uh, no, um, but look, seriously, um, this is going to happen more. This is not going away, is it? It's going it, to, and many young people have these watches, and in the future, we all have smartphones. We'll probably have these watches in 10, 15 years' time. So, we do need these types of studies to be done, but I think we need to get them in a, a zone where we go, look, if this is important information, we need to know it with a robust study. At the moment, it's uh, an interesting issue, but lots of problems involved in its design. And there's a sort of Sorry, I was gonna say, there's a sort of techie angle on this where they're really trying to test to see if the thing that they're doing is working. But there was no attempt to what look at false negatives in there, all the people who didn't get picked up with an irregular heart rate to make sure that they didn't have AF. Yeah, and I think that's where if you then start to embed it in primary care, that's where you start to use a better data approach to follow people up long term. So you might say of the people we recruited, we got them to consent to follow them up in practice and we go, oh, look, actually, we've got long term follow up. That's a classic approach to diagnostic study, studies that improves your confidence around your estimates. Mm. You can't do the gold standard test, have long term follow up. And so that should have been done. And, and it'd be interesting through. to know what was behind the reasons that people pulled out the kind mm. of the patient or participant experience of the whole thing. Like, what is it when they got their um, irregular rhythm detected that meant they couldn't really be bothered to send off and get the ECG? Mm. Or what meant that when they got the ECG, they couldn't really be bothered to send the results yeah, of it yeah. back? Very you know, because it, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because these are people who presumably to some level wanted to know about their heart rhythm because they downloaded this mm -hmm. app maybe they were worried about themselves maybe they were just curious maybe they've had symptoms it's hard to understand isn't it what's what was going through um their mind and what may have driven the those denominators further and further down yeah and, and these are the people who are taking up this watch news so self-selecting because of the 400 quid price tag that goes with that and that'll segment your population as well. So this is a whole new approach to screening, mm. screening 2.0. Remember at the current uh, way we do screening is it's within the health system. You'll get informed before you decide to be screened about the benefits and the harms and then you might you be informed about the benefits. You might be. <laughs> might just be informed about the benefits. Well that's potential <laughs> or you might call it case finding over here and get around that usual but we are supposed to you know you're supposed to do this in an informed way. We are seeing in screen point too is mass screening on a scale we've never seen before maybe not informed maybe informed but actually what's going to happen if we get this wrong is it's certainly going to generate a huge amount of work in people turning up because if you're not turning up to the apple you're going to be turning up at your primary care physician wanting more testing and wanting to know what these results are about and we're getting down the same route as well with the people who are funding this, or Apple, who have mm -hmm. a, a dog in the fight when it comes to making sure that this works. And uh, that's something, Helen, that we're going to be talking about in the future, conflict of interest. We've, yeah. we've mentioned it in the past, and it's coming back to talk evidence soon. So that's it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you are interested in what we've talked about, then as always, you can find all of the links in the podcast text. 
And whilst you're there following those, you might want to rate and review us. It's really helpful for us to get out there for people to, to find the podcast and also lets us know what you think. So have a look on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcast from to check that out. That's it for, for this month. We'll be back after Christmas uh, with more from the world of EBMs. So until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And thanks for listening. <laughs>